Section twenty three of the Chouans by Honore de Balzac, translated by Ellen Marriage. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Bruce Peary. Chapter three H. A few moments after this scene, Mademoiselle de Verneuil and the Marquis were seated in a berline drawn by four strong horses. Francine did not utter a word. She was surprised to see the two who to all appearance had been foes, now sitting hand in hand and on such good terms with each other. She did not even venture to put the question to herself whether this meant love or treachery on her mistress's part. Thanks to the stillness and the darkness of night, the Marquis could not perceive Mademoiselle de Vernoy's agitation, which increased as she drew nearer and nearer to Fougere. Through the faint dusk they could see the spire of St. Leonard's church in the distance, and then, I shall die, said Marie to herself. When they reached the first hill on the road, the same thought came to both the lovers. They left the carriage and walked up it, as if in memory of that first day of their meeting. Marie took Montauron's arm and thanked him by a smile for having respected her silence. When they reached the stretch of level ground at the summit, whence they could see Fougere, she emerged from her reverie. "'Come no further,' she said. "'My authority will not save you from the blues to-day.' Monteron showed some astonishment at this, but she smiled sadly and pointed to a massive boulder, as if to bid him to be seated, while she herself remained standing in a melancholy attitude. The heart-rending grief within her made the artifices which she had used so lavishly no longer possible to her she could have knelt on burning coals just then and have been no more conscious of them than the marquis had been of the brand which he had seized to make known the vehemence of his passion after looking long at her lover with the deepest sorrow in her gaze she pronounced the terrible words all your suspicions of me are true the marquis made an unconscious movement ah for pity's sake she cried clasping her hands hear me to the end without interrupting me i am really the daughter of the duc de verneuil she went on in an unsteady voice but i am only his natural daughter my mother uh, mademoiselle de castoran took the veil to escape from the punishment which her family had prepared for her she expiated her fault by fifteen years of weeping, and died at Sayes. It was only at the last, when on her deathbed, that the dear abbess, for my sake, sent an entreaty to the man who had forsaken her, for she knew that I had neither friends, nor fortune, nor prospects. This man, who was well remembered in Francine's home, for i had been confided to her mother's care had quite forgotten his child yet the duke welcomed me gladly and recognized my claim upon him because i was pretty and perhaps too because i brought back memories of his younger days 
he was one of those great lords who in the previous reign took a pride in showing how that if a crime were but gracefully perpetrated it needs must be condoned i will say no more about him he was my father and yet you must suffer me to explain how my life in paris could not but leave my mind tainted in the duc de verneuil's circle and in the society into which he introduced me there was a craze for the sceptical philosophy which france had accepted with enthusiasm because it was put forward everywhere with so much ability the brilliant talk that pleased my ears found favor with me on account of the keenness of apprehension displayed in it or by reason of the cleverly turned formulas which brought contempt upon religion and upon truth the men who made light of feelings and opinions expressed them all the better because they had never felt or held them and their epigrammatic turn of expression was not more attractive than the lively ease with which they could put a whole story into a word sometimes however their cleverness misled them and women found them wearisome when love-making became a science rather than an affair of the heart i made a feeble resistance to this torrent although my soul forgive me for my vanity was impassioned enough to feel that esprit had withered all these natures about me the life that i led in those days ended in a chronic strife between my natural disposition and the warped habits of mind that i had acquired a few aspiring intellects had amused themselves by encouraging me in a freedom of thought and a contempt for public opinion that deprives a woman of a certain reticence without which she has no charm alas it has not been in the power of adversity to correct the defects which prosperity implanted in me and she sighed my father the duc de verneuil she resumed died after recognizing me as his daughter leaving a will which considerably diminished the estate of my half-brother his legitimate son in my favor one morning i found myself without a protector or a roof above my head my brother disputed the will which had enriched me my vanity had been developed during the past three years which had been spent in a wealthy household my father had indulged all my fancies to him i owed a craving for luxury and habits in which my simple and inexperienced mind failed to recognize a perilous bondage the marechal duc de lenancourt one of my father's friends a man of seventy offered to become my guardian i accepted his offer and a few days after the detestable lawsuit had begun i found myself in a splendid house where i was in full possession of all the advantages that a brother's unkindness had refused to me over our father's coffin the old marshal used to come to spend a few hours with me every evening and from him i heard only gentle and soothing words his white hair and all the touching proofs of paternal tenderness which he gave me 
led me to believe that the feelings of my own heart were likewise his and i liked to think that i was his daughter i took the ornaments that he gave me and made no secret of any of my fancies when i saw him so glad to indulge them one evening i discovered that all paris looked upon me as the poor old man's mistress it was made clear to me that i could never re-establish my innocence of which i had been so groundlessly deprived the man who had taken advantage of my inexperience could not be my lover and would not be my husband in the week in which i made this hideous discovery and on the eve of the day that had been fixed for my marriage for i had insisted that he should give me his name the one reparation that it was in his power to make me he started suddenly for coblenz i was ignominiously driven from the little house in which the marshal had installed me and which was not his own property so far i have told the truth to you as if i stood before the judgment throne but after this point do not ask for a complete list of all the sufferings that lie buried in the memory of an unhappy girl one day sir i found myself danton's wife a few days later and the great oak tree about which i had cast my arms was uprooted by the tempest then when plunged for the second time into utter misery i determined to die i don't know if it was mere love of life or the hope of outwearing misfortune and so of finding at last in the depths of this infinite abyss the happiness that eluded my grasp or by what other motive i was unconsciously counselled i know not whether i was led away by the arguments of the young man from vendome who for the past two years has hung about me like a serpent about a tree thinking no doubt that some overwhelming misfortune may give me to him indeed i do not know how i came to accept this hateful mission of winning the love of a stranger whom i was to betray for three hundred thousand francs then i saw you sir and i knew you at once i knew it by one of those presentiments that never lead us astray and yet i was glad to doubt it for the more i loved you the more appalling the conviction grew for me when i rescued you from hulot's clutches i forswore the part that i was playing i determined to outwit the executioners instead of deceiving their victim it was wrong of me to play in that way with men's lives and with their schemes and with myself with all the heedlessness of a girl who can see nothing but sentiment in the world i thought that i was loved and allowed the hope of beginning my life anew to be my guide but everything about me and even i myself perhaps betrayed my lawless past for you must have mistrusted a woman with so passionate a nature as mine alas who could refuse forgiveness to me for my love and my dissimulation 
Yes, sir, I felt as though after a long and uneasy sleep I had awakened to find myself a girl of sixteen again. Was I not in Alençon? The pure and innocent memories of my childish days there rose up before me. My wild credulity led me to think that love would give me a baptism of innocence. For a little while I thought that I was a maiden still, for as yet I had never loved. But yesterday evening it seemed to me that there was sincerity in your passion, and a voice within me cried, Why do you deceive him? Know this, therefore, Marquis, she went on in a deep, hard voice, which seemed proudly to demand her own condemnation. Know this for a certainty, that I am only a dishonored creature and unworthy of you. From this moment I will resume my role of castaway. I am too weary to sustain any longer the part of the woman whom you had led to yield herself to all the most sacred impulses of her heart. Virtue weighs me down. I should despise you if you were weak enough to marry me. A Comte de Beauvon might perhaps commit such a folly, but you, sir, be worthy of your future and leave me without regret. The courtesan, you see, would require too much. She would love you in no wise like a simple and artless girl, she who felt in her heart for a little while the exquisite hope that she might be your companion, that she might make you always happy and do you honor, and be a noble and high-minded wife to you, and who, through these very thoughts that moved her, gathered courage and revived her evil nature of vice and infamy, so as to set it between herself and you as an external barrier. I gave up honor and fortune for your sake. The pride which lays this sacrifice upon me will uphold me in my wretchedness, and my fate I leave to the disposal of destiny. I will never betray you. I shall go back to Paris, and when I am there, your name will be another separate self to me, and the splendid heroism with which you will invest it will be my consolation in all my sorrows. As for you, you are a man. You will forget me. Farewell. She fled in the direction of the valleys of Saint-Sulpice, and vanished before the Marquis had risen to delay her. But she retraced her steps, hid herself in a fissure of the rocks, raised her head and anxiously and doubtfully studied the Marquis. He was walking on without heeding the direction in which he went, like a man distraught. If his should be a weak nature, she said to herself as he disappeared, and she felt herself cut off from him. Will he understand me? She trembled. Then she suddenly walked on towards Fougere by herself, 
with rapid steps as if she feared that the marquis might follow her to the town where he would have met with his death well francine what did he say she asked of her faithful breton as soon as they were together again alas marie i was sorry for him you great ladies can stab a man to the heart with a bitter word what was he like when he came up with you did he so much as see me oh marie he loves you oh he loves me or he loves me not she answered two words that mean heaven or hell for me and between those two extremes i cannot find a place on which to set my foot after she had accomplished the task laid upon her by fate marie could give way to her sorrow her face had kept its composure hitherto owing to a mixture of different sentiments within her but now it underwent a rapid change so that after a day spent in fluctuating between presentiments of joy or despair her beauty lost its radiance and the freshness which owes its existence either to the absence of all passion or to transports of happiness hulot and corentin came to see her shortly after her arrival curious to know the results of her wild enterprise marie received them smilingly well she said to the commandant whose anxious face looked searchingly at her the fox is coming within range of your guns again and you will soon gain a very glorious victory what has happened corentin inquired carelessly he gave mademoiselle de vernoy a sidelong glance such as this sort of diplomatist uses for discovering the thoughts of others ah she answered the gars is more in love with me than ever and i made him come with us as far as the gates of fougere apparently that is where your power ends said corentin and the ci devant's fears are still stronger than the love which you inspire in him mademoiselle de vernoy glanced contemptuously at corentin you judge him by yourself she replied well he said serenely why did you not bring him as far as your own house if he really loved me commandant she said to hulot with a malicious glance would you bear a grudge against me if i saved him and bore him away out of france the old veteran went quickly up to her and took her hand as if to kiss it with a sort of enthusiasm then he gazed steadily at her and said as his brow grew dark you forget my two friends and my sixty-three men ah commandant she said with all the naivete of passion that was not his fault he was tricked by a bad woman charette's mistress who i believe would drink the blood of the blues come marie corentin put in do not make fun of the commandant he does not understand your jests as yet be silent she answered 
and know that the day on which you annoy me a little too much will be your last i see mademoiselle said hulot with no bitterness in his tone that i must prepare to fight you are in no condition to do so my dear colonel i saw more than six thousand of their men at st james regular troops and ordnance and english officers but without him what will become of all these people i think as fouche does that his head is everything very well when shall we have it corinta asked impatiently i don't know was her careless response english officers cried hulot in hot wrath the one thing wanting to make a downright brigand of him ah i will fit him up with his englishmen that i will it seems to me citizen diplomatist that you allow that girl to upset all your plans from time to time was hulot's remark to corentin when they were a few paces distant from the house it is quite natural citizen commandant said corentin with a pensive air that you are bewildered by all that she has told us you men of the sword do not know that there are several ways of making war to make a dexterous use of the passions of men and women as so many springs which can be set in motion for the benefit of the state to set in position all the wheels in the mighty piece of machinery that we call a government to take a pleasure in setting within it the most stubborn sentiments like detents whose action one can amuse oneself by controlling is not all this the work of a creator is it not a position like god's in the centre of the universe you will permit me to prefer my trade to yours the soldier answered dryly do as you will with that machinery of yours i acknowledge no superior but the minister of war i have my instructions and i shall take the field with stout fellows who will not skulk and openly confront the enemy whom you wish to take from behind oh you can get ready to march if you like corentin rejoined inscrutable as you may think this girl i have managed to gather from her that there will be some skirmishing for you and before very long i shall have the pleasure of obtaining for you a tete-a-tete -tete with the chief of these brigands how will you do that inquired hulot stepping back a little the better to see this singular being mademoiselle de vernoy loves the gars corentin answered in a stifled voice and very likely he is in love with her he is a marquis he wears the red ribbon he is young and he has a clever head who knows but that he may still be wealthy how many inducements she would be very foolish not to play for her own hand and try to marry him rather than give him up to us she is endeavouring to keep us amused but i can read a kind of misgiving in the girl's eyes 
the two lovers will most probably arrange a meeting perhaps they have done so already well then to-morrow i shall have my man fast enough hitherto he was the enemy of the republic and nothing more but a few minutes ago he became mine as well and all those who have taken it into their heads to come between this girl and me have died on the scaffold when he had finished corentin became too much absorbed in his own meditations to notice the expression of intense disgust on the true-hearted soldier's face when hulot became aware of the depths in this intrigue and of the nature of the springs employed in fouché's machinery he made up his mind at once to thwart corentin in every matter in which the success of the enterprise or the wishes of the government were not essentially concerned and to give to the foe of the republic a chance of dying honorably sword in hand before he could fall a victim to the executioner whose avowed caterer stood before him in the person of this secret agent of the upper powers of the police if the first consul were to take my advice he thought turning his back on corentin he would leave this kind of fox to fight it out with the aristocrats they would be well matched and he should employ soldiers in quite other business corentin looked coolly at the veteran whose thoughts shone out plainly in his face and a sardonic expression returned to his eyes revealing a sense of superiority in this machiavellian understrapper give three ells of blue cloth to brutes of that sort and hang a bit of iron at their sides and they fancy that in politics men may only be got rid of after one fashion said he to himself he walked slowly on for a few minutes and suddenly exclaimed within yes the hour has come and the woman shall be mine the circle that i have traced about her has been gradually growing smaller and smaller for five years i have her now and with her help i shall climb as high in the government as fouche yes when she loses the one man whom she has loved the agony of it will give her to me body and soul all that i have to do now is to keep a watch on her night and day to surprise her secret a moment later an onlooker might have seen corentin's pale face at the window of a house whence he could behold every one who came into the blind alley between the row of houses in saint leonard's church he was there again on the morning of the next day patient as a cat that lies in wait for a mouse attentive to the slightest sound and engaged in submitting every passer-by to a rigorous scrutiny it was the morning of a market day and although in those troubled times the peasants scarcely ventured to come to the town 
Corentin saw a gloomy-looking man clad in goatskins, who carried a small, round, flat-shaped basket on his arm, and who went towards Mademoiselle de Vernoy's house, after giving a careless look round about him. Corentin came down from his post, proposing to stop the peasant as he came out, but it suddenly occurred to him that if he could enter Mademoiselle de Vernoy's house at unawares, a single glance might possibly surprise the secret hidden in the messenger's basket. Popular report, moreover, had taught him that it was all but impossible to come off best in an encounter with the impenetrable replies that Normans and Bretons are wont to make. Galop Chopin, cried Mademoiselle de Vernoy, as Francine brought in the shoon. Am I then beloved? she added to herself in a low voice. An instinct of hope brought a bright color to her face and put joy in her heart. Galop Chopin looked by turns at the mistress of the house and at Francine, casting suspicious glances at the latter, until his doubts were removed by a sign from Mademoiselle de Vernoy. Madame, he said, towards two o'clock, he will be at my place, waiting for you. Mademoiselle de Vernoy's agitation was so great that she could only bend her head in reply, but a Samoyed could have understood all its significance. Corentin's footsteps echoed in the salon at that moment. Galop Chopin was not disturbed in the least when Mademoiselle de Vernoy's glance and shudder made him aware of approaching danger. As soon as the spy showed his astute countenance, the shoon raised his voice to a deafening pitch. Yes, yes, he said to Francine, there is Brittany butter and Brittany butter. You want gibari butter and only give eleven sous the pound for it? You ought not to have sent for me. This is really good butter he said, opening his basket, and exhibiting two pats that Barbette had made up. Pay a fair price, good lady. Come, another sou. There was no trace of agitation in his hollow voice, and his green eyes underneath the bushy grey eyebrows bore Corentin's keen scrutiny without flinching. Come now, my man, hold your tongue. You did not come here to sell butter. You are dealing with a lady who never drove a bargain in her life. Your line of business, old boy, will leave you shorter by a head some of these days. Corentin tapped him amicably on the shoulder and continued. You cannot be in the service of both shoe-ones and blues at once for very long. It took all Galop Chopin's self-possession to choke down his wrath, and so prevent himself from rebutting this accusation, which, owing to his avarice, was a true one. He contented himself with saying, The gentleman has a mind to laugh at me. Corentin had turned his back upon the Chouan, but as he greeted Mademoiselle de Vernoy, whose heart stood still with terror, he could easily watch the man in the mirror. 
Galop Chopin, who believed that the spy could no longer see him, looked inquiringly at Francine, and Francine pointed to the door, saying, Come along with me, good man. We shall always manage to settle things comfortably. Nothing had been lost upon Corentin. He had seen everything. He had noticed the contraction of Mademoiselle de Vernoy's mouth, which her smile had failed to disguise, and her red flush, and the alteration in her features, as well as the Shuwan's uneasiness and Francine's gesture. He felt certain that Galop Chopin was a messenger from the Marquis, caught at the long hair of the man's goatskins, stopped him just as he was going out, drew him back so that he confronted his own steady gaze, and said, Where do you live, my good friend? I want butter. Good gentleman, the Shuan answered, everybody in Fougere knows where I live. I am, as you may say. Corentin, cried Mademoiselle de Vernoy, breaking in upon Galop Chopin's answer. It is a great piece of presumption on your part to pay me a visit at this time of day, and to take me by surprise like this. I am scarcely dressed. Leave the peasant in peace. He understands your tactics as little as I understand your motives for them. Go, good fellow. Galop Chopin hesitated for a moment before he went. The indecision of an unlucky wretch who cannot tell whom he must obey whether it was real or feigned, had already succeeded in deceiving Corentin, and the Shuan, at an imperative gesture from Marie, tramped heavily away. Then Mademoiselle de Vernoy and Corentin looked at one another in silence. This time Marie's clear eyes could not endure the intensity of the arid glare that was shed upon her in the other's gaze the determined manner with which the spy had made his way into her room an expression on his face which was new to marie the dull sound of his thin voice his attitude everything about him alarmed her she felt that a secret struggle had begun between them and that he was exerting all the powers of his sinister influence against her but although at that moment she distinctly beheld the full extent of the gulf and the depths to which she had consigned herself she drew sufficient strength from her love to shake off the icy cold of her presentiments corentin she began with an attempt at mirth i hope you will allow me to finish my toilette marie said he yes allow me to call you so you do not know me yet listen a less sharp-sighted man than i would have found out your love for the marquis de monteron before this i have again and again offered you my heart and my hand you did not think me worthy of you and perhaps you were right but if you think that you are too much above me too beautiful or too high-minded for me I can easily make you come down to my level. My ambitions and my doctrines have inspired you with scanty respect for me, and to be plain with you, you are wrong. 
the value of men is even less than my estimate of them and i rate them at next to nothing there can be no doubt but that i shall attain to a high position to honors that will gratify your pride who will love you better than i over whom will you have such an absolute dominion as over the man who has loved you for five years past at the risk of making an impression upon you which will not be in my favor for you have no idea that it is possible to renounce through excess of love the woman whom one worships i will give you a measure of the disinterested affection with which i adore you do not shake your pretty head in that way if the marquis loves you marry him but first make quite sure of his sincerity if i knew that you were disappointed in him i should be in despair for your happiness is dearer to me than my own my determination may surprise you but you must describe it simply to the prudence of a man who is not fool enough to wish to possess a woman against her will i blame myself moreover and not you for the futility of my efforts i hoped to win you by dint of submission and devotion for as you know for a long time past i have tried to make you happy after my notions but you have thought fit to reward me for nothing i have endured your presence she said haughtily say further that you are sorry to have done so after you have committed me to this disgraceful enterprise are thanks still owing to you when i proposed an undertaking to you in which timorous souls might find something blameworthy i had only your fortune in view he answered audaciously as for me whether i succeed or fail i can now make every sort of result conduce to the ultimate success of my plans if you should marry monteron i shall be delighted to make myself useful to the bourbon cause in paris where i am a member of the clichy club as it happens any circumstance that put me in correspondence with the princes would persuade me to quit the cause of a republic which is tottering to its fall general bonaparte is far too clever not to perceive that he cannot possibly be at once in germany and italy and here where the revolution is on the wane he arranged the eighteenth brumaire because no doubt he wished to obtain the best possible terms from the bourbons in treating with them as to france for he is a very clever fellow and has no lack of capacity but politicians ought to get ahead of him on the road on which he has entered as to betraying france we who are superior to any scruples on that score can leave them to fools i am fully empowered i do not conceal it from you either to open negotiations with the shuan chiefs or to extirpate them for my patron fouche is deep fellow enough he has always played a double game 
during the terror he was at once for robespierre and for danton whom you forsook like a coward she said rubbish replied corentin he is dead forget him come speak your mind frankly i have set the example the chief of the demi-brigade is shrewder than he looks and if you wish to elude the watch he keeps i might be useful to you so long as you stay here beneath his eye you are at the mercy of his police you see how quickly he learned that the shuan was with you how could his military sagacity fail to make it plain to him that your least movements would keep him informed as to the whereabouts of the marquis if you are loved by montauran mademoiselle de vernoy had never heard such gently affectionate tones before corentin seemed to be absolutely sincere and to put full trust in her the poor girl's heart so readily received generous impressions that she was about to entrust her secret to the serpent who had wound his coils about her she bethought herself however that she had no proof whatever that this crafty talk was genuine and so she felt no hesitation about deceiving the man who was watching her well she answered you have guessed my secret corentin yes i love the marquis but i am not loved by him or at least i fear not so that the rendezvous he has made seems to me to hide some trap but you told us yesterday that he had come with you as far as fougere corentin replied if he had intended violence you would not be here your heart is withered corentin you can base cunningly contrived schemes on the occurrences of ordinary life but you cannot reckon with the course of passion perhaps that is the cause of the aversion that you always inspire in me but as you are so clear-sighted try to understand how it is that a man from whom the day before yesterday i parted in anger is waiting eagerly for me to-day on the mayenne road at a house in florigny towards the end of the day at this confession which seemed to have escaped from her in a moment of excitement natural enough in a nature so passionate and outspoken corentin reddened for he was still young but furtively he gave her one of those keen glances that try to explore the soul mademoiselle de vernoy's feigned revelation of self had been made so skilfully that the spy was deceived he made answer with a semblance of good nature would you like me to follow you at a distance i would take soldiers in plain clothes with me and we should be at your orders i agree to it said she but promise me on your honour oh no for i put no faith in that on your salvation but you do not believe in god on your soul but perhaps you have no soul 
what guarantee can you give me of your fidelity and yet i am trusting in you notwithstanding and i am putting into your hands more than my life or my love or my revenge the faint smile that appeared over corentin's sallow features showed mademoiselle de vernoy the danger that she had just escaped the agent of police whose nostrils seemed to contract rather than to expand took his victim's hand and kissed it with every outward sign of deep respect and took leave of her with a not ungraceful bow End of section 23